Mega Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal. Today, I'm coming to you with the pleasure of speaking with Craig Brown, who's an emergency physician and senior clinical lecturer at the University of Aberdeen School of Medicine, obviously in Scotland. Craig and co-authors have a paper entitled Disembodied, Dehumanized, But Safe and Feasible, The Social Spatial Flow of a Pandemic OSCE, coming out in the February 2024 issue of the journal. And I'm thrilled to have a chance to chat with you about the paper, Craig. Thanks for making the time at the end of a very busy week. Thank you. So OSCEs, obviously, we don't need to explain to anybody who would be listening to this podcast, but because they've been around, I suppose, for almost five decades now, I guess the natural question is, why did you feel like we have to continue studying them, given the masses of papers that have already been developed on the topic? Yeah, um, that, that's a very good question. I think, um, you know, we see, I've, I've grown up um, through medical training with lots of OSCEs. I've been on, on the receiving end of them. Um, but one of my roles at the university is as a OSCE coordinator. And actually, it's fascinating being on the other side of the fence and working out really how we translate things from our blueprint of our OSCE um, to operationalize it. I think really what gave me the, the idea to sort of study it in a lot of detail um, was the opportunity afforded by the pandemic really to get us to examine how we do things and why we do things like we've always done around here. Mm-hmm. Um, as really sort of the premise of what got us interested in it. And, you know, I think in the paper we draw on a, a lot of different references from across the world looking at OSCEs and really everything that we really understand about them is about the psychometrics and why they're good for assessment, etc. What really spurred me on um, two or three years ago was actually to think about things differently. Um, so it was a role at a paper um, they really said, you know, we need to move into this post-psychometric era of thinking about things. And it really just opened my worldview to thinking about how we study things differently. And actually, the pandemic really afforded us this opportunity. And because I imagine for all of us, everything was so different during that time. Right, right. Yeah, well, and one of the lenses that I know you place on this that is growing and prevalence, but so relatively unique in our field is this notion of social materiality. What led you to that? And and I guess even as part of that answer, can you explain what social materiality means to our listeners? Yeah, social materiality is just a particular lens to look at the different interactions of of everything. So considering the fact that objects have agency just as humans have agency on each other. And I think the best way that I sort of came across this when I was looking into it at the very start was like thinking about everybody that was working from home during the pandemic how where you positioned your laptop in your house really affected your social life, really affected your dinner time with the kids, and really affect your posture if you're sitting at a workstation that doesn't suit your height and things. And really, all those different interactions at play affect every part of our social life and with the materials that we're interacting with. So it's really, a, like you say, an up-and-coming area um, within research in general, but specifically within healthcare education research, just to look at these, I think the, the terminologies, entanglements of how all these things are related and what happens when these entanglements are disrupted. 
just saying that the objects have agency you all of a sudden made me very conscious of the, where I'm sitting and all the place, things around me. And uh, you're definitely, I think in my house, we went through three or four different arrangements during the pandemic trying to make it work. So uh, that's a, a great example to, to help one understand that. But how does one actually study it? How did you go about gathering observations that would give you some insights into the role that the material was playing rather than just your imaginations? Yeah. So I think, first of all, we wanted to do a case study approach and being aware it's referred to in the literature as a case study isn't necessarily always the true definition of what a case study is. So we wanted to look at a particular area of inquiry bound in time and place, and but look at it through different constituent parts. And so we brought some methodological experts into our team that really have a background in social materiality and looking at things from that lens. We thought about it long and hard as to how we were going to really look at what was the differences between this OSCE um, in particular and previous OSCEs as to how things had always been done. And I guess we looked at sort of three main sources of evidence. We looked at the documents that are prevalent around about an OSCE time, so the questions, the blueprints, and the site plans. And that was the first sort of area that we looked at. And actually looking at those documents and the plans just really showed us how different this OSCE was almost acted as a magnifier as to some of the issues that were at play because they were so different to usual. And they were able to sort of look back at what had happened before. The second technique that we used was photo elicitation. And I had always thought if I hadn't been a doctor and an educational researcher, I would have liked to have been an architect mm-hmm. and a photographer. Anytime I go abroad, I'm up the tallest building that I can find, appreciating the architecture and how people interact with that environment. I love taking photos of buildings and architecture. So the idea had developed over many years about how we use our spaces for teaching, but also we're using our space for assessment almost as a bolt-on. That got us thinking about that in a lot more detail. So we were able to use some photos that were taken of the OSCE. I think during the pandemic, everybody was taking photos of everything that was a bit weird. And we were taking photos of one-way streets and we were taking photos of trying to work our way around a supermarket in a particular order um, that was just totally unnatural to us. Um, And actually, we used the opportunity of the OSCE. We took some photos of things that were really different to what was normal practice um, to help highlight that. And then the third particular approach that we used was interviewing those that were involved in the organisation and delivery of an OSCE. So the, the workers, as opposed to um, what's traditionally thought of as being a part of OSCE research. So the students and their grades or the opinions of the hawks and the doves and the examiners. We want to look at those that were operationalising the OSCE. And there's a concept that you use to frame your results that I think needs to be unpacked a little bit, and this idea of ordering. What does that mean? And can you sort of use it to tell people about what you think to be the key observations that you've made? Yeah, great. So we use this concept called Law's Modes of Ordering. Law was an ethnographic researcher in the scientific industries, but his framework's been applied to a number of things. And I think the clearest example in the sort of parallels with the OSCE is it was used to research how people move through an airport and how all the artifacts within an airport allow the traveller to check in, to move to the right zone, to board the plane, that ensures that the luggage is at the same place as the, the passenger and that they eventually arrive at their destination. And actually, when there is a disrupting event, so in the case of one paper that we looked at, somebody had thrown a backpack over a fence and there was obviously a bomb scare. And actually, how that disrupted all those different mechanisms. 
So we used that and applied that to the OSCE. Um, so we used COVID as our disrupting event to see how everything was reordered and then how everything created this sort of new normal for the OSCE for us during that period. But bearing in mind that that was just a one-time event, um, we know that in the future there will be further disordering events and we can come into what we think uh, some of them might be, I hope. It would be good to have a crystal ball. I think we can predict uh-huh. some, some things that are going to disorder things in the future. So we're acutely aware we've got vastly increasing student numbers coming through. That's obviously going to impact how we OSCE our students. Um, there's this government directive saying that we should try and shorten the length of undergraduate medical training within our country. So that's obviously going to change how we do things in the future as well. Um, and, and there's the unknown as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's one thing to describe the order or the sort of activity flow through an OSCE. It's another to determine what new insights can be gained about the OSCE and people's roles and, and actions in it. How did the ordering inform your thinking about OSCEs and what makes them valuable or not? We looked at the orderings. What we found is this, the overarching, I guess, the, the reason that everything was different is because the OSCE had to continue to be delivered in a safe and feasible way was sort of this overarching theme that we found that every change that was made in the documents or in the photos, it was to allow assessment to continue. And this is on the background of uh, having a year that there was absolutely no assessment that could happen at all. And there was almost a complete lockdown within our country at the point of the Dosky season. Then other things that we found out, there was a a lot of uh, reordering in that everybody made decisions to try and make things as near as possible to uh, previous to what could continue, but do it in a safe way. So for example, the three main themes that we, or the organizers substituted technology for bodies. And, but this means that we were seeing patients online as opposed to in person, or were, they were using joint models um, instead of real human uh, joints, such as ankles or knees, et cetera, to examine. But that, led to this real feeling of it being uh, disembodied and dehumanised, um, which is the title of our paper, but it was a feasible exam. Um, and I think a lot of it was about trying to make things as feasible as possible um, in a poor set of circumstances. Um, another thing that we looked quite a lot at, and I guess it has the parallels with the airport paper, is that how people move through the space. So we're, we're talking about largish numbers of students and how we move them through space in a safe way. And actually, really the impact of space and the buildings and where we do our our examinations, um, it really leads to this thought of how do we move beyond the blueprint and how how does it relate to the blueprint? So actually, we have a set number of rooms and we can only fit beds in certain rooms. So if we want to have an assessment, uh, we need to determine how many beds we have or how many chair spaces that we could have to do this assessment. And um, so actually it all impacts each other. And that yeah, goes back to the uh, Behrman and Ajawi paper that says, you know, there are so many influences in what the final exam ends up being, uh, the OSCE checklist that are at play here. And you said that yeah. there will be other disruptions to come and undoubtedly that's true. At the same time, I'm wondering in your normal practice, to the extent that there is such a thing, has undertaking this study changed anything for you as an OSCE coordinator? I think it's made me think about the impact of changes that we make on the overall experience for the students and for the examiners. I think it's made me think a lot more about this interaction between 
the space and the props and the blueprint and overall what we're hoping to try and achieve through this exam format. I was glad to see our paper has been picked up for a commentary by some authors, Rashid and Chan, actually looking at this and actually talking about the reinvention of the OSCE and how it's had this mileage for you know 50 years plus, but actually thinking of different ways of looking at it so it can continue to flourish. I think that the line that they have is really useful. As we think about assessment, you know, what's the purpose of it? How do we do it? What's involved um, to, to maximize the benefits of it? Excellent. That is a positive note to have to wrap up on because there's a lot of detail there that we won't be able to get to. And I think the papers are particularly valuable, stimulate some reflection on the part of anybody who is involved in not just OSCEs, but in assessment practices more generally to think about, as you said, you know, why are we doing what we do? So congratulations on the work and thanks. And anybody listening, I would highly recommend that they, they take a look at the, the rest of the details in the paper. So appreciate that, Craig. And I'll just end by reminding people that the title of the paper we've been discussing is Disembodied, Dehumanized, But Safe and Feasible, The Social Spatial Flow of a Pandemic OSCE. Craig Brown is the voice you've been listening to, and we'll let him get back to his clinical work. Thank you. Thank you.